We are starting a series in the Gospel of Mark today, as has been mentioned, and if you take the first three books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're called synoptic gospels. The word synoptic is just two Greek words that are kind of smashed together, and it just means to see together. And so the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are seeing the life of Jesus together. That's why a lot of material in these gospels will uh, overlap, and it will be the same. It will be from different perspectives, but it, it covers the same events. And so it's possible then to argue that of the three synoptic gospels, Mark is absolutely the most important. And we could go a little further, and we could even say that because it's the most important of the three synoptic gospels, it's probably the most important book in the world because it is agreed that near, by nearly everyone that it is the earliest of the gospels and therefore certainly the first written account of the life of Jesus that has come down to us. Now, there were probably other written accounts of the life of Jesus. Mark's probably not the first person to ever write about Jesus, but Mark's gospel is certainly the earliest that has survived that we have in our hands. And so what Mark is, this book, it's the closest we will ever get to an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And so we're going to spend some time with this record. It'll take us all the way to Easter Sunday. And today we're going to start in at the beginning and Mark wastes no time. He says this, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now there are a few thoughts that I want to give you today. The first is this this thought of creation, creation. Genesis 1.1, if you go all the way back to the beginning of, of the Bible, it starts in the beginning, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And here in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he starts very similarly, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark connects his writing right away back to Genesis, and right off the bat, he tells us that God is doing something new. He's creating something. Something is going on that life will come from. And if we get to know Mark, the writer, we'll see that his own story is kind of a testimony to new beginnings. We first encounter Mark in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 12 lets us in on the fact that there was a house that the early believers used to gather at, and it was the house of a well-to-do lady in Jerusalem whose name was Mary. And Mary has a son. We don't really know how old he is at the time, but the son is named John, and he has another name, Mark. Sometimes they are squished together, and he's called John Mark. And so Mark... Because people who are following Jesus for the very first time are meeting in his house, he has this front row seat to the beginning of Christianity because it grew out of his living room. And so we also get from Scripture that Mark is actually the nephew of a guy named Barnabas. Maybe you've heard that name before. Paul and Barnabas uh, set out on a missionary journey to plant churches and tell the news of Jesus, and they took with them Mark. He was their secretary. He was their attendant. And this journey will turn out to be a most unfortunate one for Mark. They reach a place named Perga, 
and they were headed to Antioch. And for some reason, we don't really know why, we, get, we just get the, uh, the text says Mark left and he went home. Maybe it was because he was scared. There are all kinds of proposals about why Mark left. Maybe uh, between Perga and Antioch, there was one of the most difficult and dangerous roads on the planet. Uh, it was, in addition to being very dangerous, it was roamed by bandits, and maybe that's why he left. He, he was scared. Maybe he went home because uh, there was this leadership battle between Paul and Barnabas, and it became increasingly clear that Uncle Barnabas wasn't going to win, and so he had hard feelings for Paul. We don't know why. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom sorry, uh, in, in the fourth century just says this about why he thought John Mark went home. It was because he wanted his mother. Okay? So there's even that out there. We don't get the reason. We just get that Mark quit, and he abandoned the mission, and actually, Paul calls him a deserter. Paul and Barnabas complete this first missionary journey that they have, and a little while later, they decide to go out again, and Barnabas says, hey, why don't we take Mark with us? And Paul says, uh-uh, not on your life. I'm not taking that man who deserted us in Pamphylia. And so Barnabas and Paul have this disagreement because Barnabas wants to take his nephew Mark, and the disagreement is so sharp that Barnabas goes one way and Paul goes the other way, and they split company, as, and as far as we know, they never work again together to share the gospel. And so for some years, Mark vanishes from history, and when he reemerges, it is in the most surprising way. We, we've, we read in the letter of Colossians that Paul is writing from a prison cell in Rome. We learn that Mark is there with him. And then in another prison letter to uh, Philemon, Paul counts Mark among his fellow workers. And then this, Paul is waiting for the end of his life. He's waiting for death. He's come to the end and he writes to his uh, disciple Timothy, his right-hand man, and he says this, I want you to get Mark, I want you to bring him with you because he is useful in my ministry. Man, is that quite the reversal, right? In Acts, Paul is ready to dismiss this guy. He, he, he's a quitter. I don't want to have any part of him. But by the end of his life, he's one of Paul's most helpful workers. Whatever happened, Mark had redeemed himself. And at some point after this, Mark picks up a pen and he writes down the story of Jesus. Now, aside from Mark being a close companion of Paul, we also know that Mark was a close companion of Peter, the apostle, Jesus's friend and follower. Peter is writing in his letter and he sends greetings to a lot of people uh, and he says, and so does my son, Mark, send you greetings. And so we get this idea that Peter had such a close connection with Mark that he actually called him his son. That's amazing. And so when Mark begins to write about Jesus, it is assumed by many in the early church that what he's writing are the firsthand accounts of Jesus's friend and follower, Peter. And so all of the experiences that Peter had 
with Jesus? That's what Mark writes. And right away, without getting into a single word in this book, what do we learn? We learn this, that failure is never final. Never is. The gospel of Jesus means that there's always a new creation. There's always a new beginning available to you and to me. I love the way Mark Batterson puts it. He puts it like this. It's never too late to become who you might have been. And in the gospel, that is absolutely true. This deserter who quits is able, at the end of the day, to pick up a pen and make it possible for all of humanity, you and me included, to know about Jesus. And so failure is not the last word about Mark, and it doesn't have to be the last word about you or me either. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, we jump into Mark's writing, and we find that it is absolutely straight to the point. There is no prologue about Jesus. There's no genealogy that leads up to where Jesus came from. There's no credentials laying out the authority of Jesus. We're just right to Jesus. It's just Jesus. Mark's account is shorter. There's not much commentary about Jesus. There's not much teaching by Jesus. There are long discourses in Matthew and Luke that are largely absent from the book of Mark. There's no Sermon on the Mount in the book of Mark. Mark just gives the action. The word immediately is actually Mark's favorite word. He uses it over 36 times in 16 chapters in the version that I'm working out of, the ESV. And Mark just focuses on Jesus' character, his actions. Mark's framework is that it's what Jesus did that shows us who he was. And so from Mark's pen, we get just Jesus, the real Jesus, and man, do we need that. I don't know about you, but I see all over the place, when I hop on my phone, when I read, when I, when I turn on the TV, I see all over the place opinions and theories and fantasies about who Jesus is, about who he was, whether he even existed, if he did exist, who was he, maybe he was great, maybe he was not. There's all kinds of stuff out there, and man, do we need just Jesus. That's what we need, and that's what Mark gives us. The story he writes of Jesus is called, by his own pen, the gospel, the gospel. Now, that word had weight in the day of Jesus. It has kind of lost its polish in our day. When we say good news or when we talk about the gospel, people usually around us just think, well, that's churchy, right? That's a church language kind of word. But in their day, it wasn't a church word at all. It was actually a journalism word. It came out of uh, it was reserved for history-making, life-changing, world-changing kind of news. And so there's an ancient inscription from the time of Jesus that reads this way, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And the story that follows is the birth and the coronation of the Roman emperor Augustus. And so the gospel, a gospel was news of some event that changed the world in a profound way. It was the, the news of an ascension to the throne that would rework politics. It is news of a great military battle that will change all of the maps. That's what a gospel is. There's an account when Greece was invaded by Persia 
that the Greeks went and they fought a great battle against the Persians in, at the city of Marathon, and they actually won the battle. And so after the battle, they sent a herald to proclaim the gospel, the good news to the capital city of Athens, to all of the people in Athens. They were waiting to see what had happened on the battlefront, and this guy runs, his name is Pheidippides. He's sent from the battlefield near the city of Marathon. He's sent all the way to Athens. It's about 25 miles, and when he gets there, he gets to the center of Athens, and he delivers the news, Nike! That's what he said. Uh, some of you don't know that's the Greek word for victory. Yeah, victory. He said victory, and then he dropped dead. <laughs> now, this run was why we have modern-day marathons, and it's also say, uh, why we, you shouldn't run one, because we might die. Um, but he had, the, he had the right word, right? But he didn't have the right shoes, he did, uh, is what was going on. But you see the importance of bringing good news. He was bringing good news, a gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that has been done for you on your behalf that changes your life or your status forever. And so, most people around us today are looking for answers for their life. How do I live my life? What, what's the meaning of all this? And what our world usually throws back at them is advice. Well, here's how you do this. Well, here's what you should do. Let me give you some advice. And advice always comes with baggage because advice just means you have to do something. If you're a parent and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I have some advice. Uh, when you discipline your kids, you should just be intentional and consistent about your discipline. Now, that's a great thought, right? Actually, it's really good thought. But what does that mean? To a new parent, it means, oh my goodness, I have to do something. Now, that's a big weight on my shoulders, just one more thing that I have to try to live up to. It's an added burden that I have to try to carry around and jump over, right? That's not a true gospel message. Good advice is what a lot of people think Christianity is, but advice isn't good news at all because it comes with weight. Mark is not dispensing advice on how to live. He's giving the reader a gospel, the good news about what God has done in history for them. And that's entirely and utterly different and set apart from every other religious leader and every other way. The essence of other religions is advice. Here's what to do. Here's how to get to God. Here's 10 steps for you to follow. The essence of Christianity is different. It's news. It's here's what has been done for you. Now let that go change the way that you live so that you're no longer a slave, but you're free. Somebody has fought on your behalf and has won. That is good, joyful, life-changing news. And so what is this news? Mark says this, the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There it is. That's it. That's the good news. That is the thing that's been done on our behalf. It's the historical fact of Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the dead. The good news is that God has come to us and done something 
for us in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. Now, that's a very short headline. If you're running from Marathon all the way to Athens and you get there, it's just Jesus Christ, the son of God, and then you can die. That's, that's very short, right? But it's packed with meaning. Jesus is a divinely given personal name. Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Joshua, and Joshua in the Old Testament means Yahweh is salvation, or Jehovah is salvation, God is salvation. So Jesus, Christ, Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means anointed one, and so the Messiah in the Old Testament was this prophesied deliverer who would come and who would bring fulfillment to all of God's people, uh, God's fulfillment of God's promises. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Instead, it is a claim. Jesus is the Christ. The Jesus uh, is the one who was looked for from Old Testament times that God sent to redeem the world. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus Christ's son just means that he was born and is a human person, but he is the son of God. Of God means that even though he was fully human, he's also fully divine because God is his father. And so Jesus is the God who is man, and he is the man who is God. And so this simple line, this simple truth, this simple proclamation became the creed for the very first followers of Jesus. There was no other. It was the Creed. And so uh, we've talked about creation. Let me talk about the creed just for a second. When people understood what God had done for them in history and the person of Jesus, this is what they proclaimed about Jesus. They would say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what the eunuch said in Acts chapter 8. Saul says in Acts chapter 9, Jesus is the Son of God. John says, I have seen and borne witness that he is the Son of God. Nathaniel comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Martha steps up to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And even at the beginning, when the angel comes to Mary, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That's the creed. We see it all over the places. That's, those are just a few examples. And in the book of Mark, we find it all the way through. It's like a thread that runs all the way through the book specifically. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 1, 11, a voice comes from heaven. It's God's voice. It says, you are my beloved Son. It's talking about Jesus. With you, I am well pleased. Mark 3, 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. Mark 8, Jesus says, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words, then I will be ashamed of him, the Son of Man, and I will, when, when I come in my Father's glory with the holy angels. So he is the Son, God is the Father. Mark 9, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my Son in whom 
I love. Listen to him. Mark 12, he had one left to sin, a son. Jesus tells a parable about himself. He says, I am the son. They will respect my son. And it displays that Jesus is the son of God. Mark 13, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Mark 14, the high priest asks Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? He says, I am. And then finally, in Mark chapter 15, there's a centurion, a soldier that is at the foot of the cross, and he stands there and he watches Jesus die, and as he does, he says, surely this man was the son of God. And so the earliest Christian creed, it is the one that we still use, by the way, it boldly asserts that Jesus is God's son. I want you to say it with me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. That's what we say. We use that creed even today, and Mark starts off with this creed, and it is a mic drop from the very first verse. It is a bombshell because Jewish people weren't supposed to, to do this. A human being cannot be worshipped as God. Everything in Judaism pushes back against this idea of a human being being God, and yet here they are, very Jewish people making this claim that a very human person is God himself. And that doesn't happen without something monumental taking place in history. And the, the absolute question is, well, what is that thing that, that caused all of this to be, that caused people to worship Jesus as God? And Mark's invitation is this, just keep reading, just keep reading. And let's pause just for a second. And let's ask, what does Jesus becoming the Son of God mean for us? What difference does that make in my life? And there are probably a lot that we could point to. Let me point to three. Number one, we get a new way of serving. The thing that drives us is usually fear. The reason we do anything is usually to prove to ourselves or to somebody else or to ultimately God that we can measure up. It's fear. But this idea that God becomes a man, that God comes and camps out in flesh, it means that God has come to us. That we haven't jumped up to God. God has come down. He's reached down. And because He has, we can absolutely know without doubt that we have God, that we can know God, and that we can be acceptable to God through Jesus. And because we are acceptable, because Jesus has acted on our behalf and there's nothing left to prove, now our motive isn't fear anymore. It's gratitude. It's joy. That's the whole new reason for doing anything. And so God become man means that we have a whole new way of serving. Here's also what it means, that we get a new way of suffering. We get a new way of suffering. Maybe put yourself in a position where you are hurting at the moment. And I want you to imagine that you have a friend that comes and sits down by your side, and that friend has two options. Here's the first option, and they take number one. They say, you know what? Here's what you should do in your current situation. You should X and Y and Z, and uh, after you do all that, it'll probably work out. And then they leave. That's one option. The second option is that friend, that same friend, sits down and puts their arm around you and says, you know what? 
I went through that very same thing. I went through this. The thing that you're dealing with now, I've been there. And as a matter of fact, I went through it in a worse way, in a harder way. And here's what I want you to know. I will be with you through this. I was there. I went through it. And I got through it. And I know you can too. And I will be here. Now, which one of those responses do you need more? Isn't it number two? There's no other philosophy, there's no other religion that has this core truth as a part of it other than Christianity, that God has been through everything that you have been through, that I've been through, and He's been through it even more intensely than we will ever face, and He has promised that He will be with us all the way. There's a poem that goes this way, no other gods were strong, but thou was weak, they rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no God has wounds, but thou alone. Son of God, that God became man in Jesus Christ means that he shares your hurt, that he has been where you are, and that when you talk to him, he understands. That's what son of God means. And so, we could all benefit by using that kind of idea in our prayers. No God has wounds, but the God that we worship. We have a new way of suffering. Here's number three. We get a new way of saving. A new way of saving. If Jesus Christ is God, then that means when God came to the earth, He got a material, physical body of flesh. And it also means that when Jesus died, that that material fleshly body died as well. But then three days later, he rose from the dead with a very, again, physical body. Now, admittedly, it was a version 2.0 body. It was something else, right? People uh, didn't really know what to make of it. And yet, it was very physical because he ate, he walked, he talked, people touched him. And it That means that he wasn't just redeemed spiritually, but he was redeemed physically. God made us physical and spiritual people, and when he became us, when God became one of us, he redeemed both of those realities, both soul and body. And so salvation then is not an escape from this fleshly tent. It's not an escape from the material world. World. It is a redemption. It is a renewal. It is a restoration of it. We will get new bodies, physical bodies. We will live in a new heaven and a new earth, very physical places. That's where all of this is going to. And what does that tell us right now? It means that it's not only our spiritual life that we should be focused on, but the material as well. Absolutely, God's ultimate purpose is the forgiveness of sin and the, and the redemption of our souls, right? And yet, there is also this, he's concerned about our material body, and so we should have a fight in us to redeem the soul, but also to redeem the body. And we should talk long and hard about what it means to fight against poverty, to fight against the disease in this material world, 
Let's work to save all of people because God saved all of us. So there's creation here in this text. There's a creed here in this text. And finally, let's, let's end with the cross in this text. Where's the cross? I don't see the cross, Dusty. Verse 2 and 3, read with me. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And Mark anchors his opening lines in the creed that he has just talked about, that he's just written down, to a prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, the prophecy, he says, is from Isaiah. Some manuscripts just say it's from the prophets. Because reality is, it's from two places. It's from Malachi chapter 3. It's also from Isaiah chapter 4. And there was an ancient hope that these prophecies point to. It's a hope that one day a Messiah would come. One day a king will come and he will ride into town and he will take all of the Jewish people to his side and he will tear every mountain down and he will raise up every canyon. He will proclaim good news to the poor. He will set free the captives. He will give sight to the blind. He will give liberty to the people who are oppressed. That's who's coming. And Mark roots the gospel of Jesus Christ into that ancient hope. And he says, guess what? Jesus is that guy. Jesus is that Messiah, that King that has come. And so, prepare the way. Make the roads straight. Get rid of that nasty bit of road. You know the world where, where the road curves and nobody can really navigate it real well and we always have oxes and carts in the ditch? Make it straight. Let's make it straight. Prepare the way. Now, when people read that for the very first time, it would bring to mind what had to be done in a town or a city in order for a king, a monarch, to come and visit. There's lots of work that went into that. They would build a new highway into the town. They would get rid of the little paths and the little switchbacks. And if there was a canyon, they would build a bridge across it. And I want you to think about what that kind of work takes. At the end of the day, it takes slaves. It takes gobs and gobs of slaves. And so a king coming to visit your town usually meant slavery for a lot of people. But this king is different. And this road is different. The word that Mark uses here is just the normal word for road. It's hodos, and it just means a way or a road. But what's significant is to find all of the other places in the book of Mark where he uses this word. And you can argue pretty convincingly that every other place that he uses this word, way or road, they all lead to the same place. And most telling is in Mark chapter 10. Jesus and his disciples are on the what? Road. Road. They're going up to Jerusalem and Jesus is walking ahead of them. And they were kind of amazed. And he, he turns and he says this. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, the Son of God, 
will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, they will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the road to Jerusalem. He's resolute in this mission. He tells his disciples he will die and that he will rise again. Why? Because that's the road that has been prepared for him. He knows it and he walks it. The way of Jesus, the way of the Son of God, is not a shiny, new, flat, smooth road straight to a throne. That would be normal for a king. The way of Jesus, the Son of God, is a shiny, flat, smooth road straight to a cross. That's his way. And that's, that's the ultimate paradox, is it not? That, that the king of the world, the Messiah, the Son of God, goes not to a throne, but to a cross. A throne is a place of power and authority and dominion and rule. And isn't that what the Son of God deserves if he comes to visit? A cross is exactly the opposite. It is a place of shame. It is a place where somebody is humiliated. It is where they are utterly helpless. They die a painful, agonizing, very public death, stripped bare to die while everybody watches. Is that what the Son of God deserves if He comes to visit us? No. But that's the road He took. Because that's the way that was prepared for him. And right off the bat, Mark wants to tell us that the kingliness of Jesus is not that he went to a throne, but to a feeding trough. And he began to walk a path, a road that would lead him to a cross and ultimately to a tomb. And because he traveled that way that was prepared for him, we are free. We are saved. We are forgiven, and we know this, that failure is never final for us, because there is always a new beginning waiting for us in Christ Jesus, even right now. Jesus lost heaven. He lost God so that you could find God. His path led to a cross so that you can have a crown. And that's the invitation today, to find God. How do we do that? The creed. We go back to the creed. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Maybe you are not convinced today that that's the truth. Here's Mark's invitation to you. Keep reading. Keep reading. Get to know just Jesus, the real Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, God's Son. And maybe by the time we get to chapter 15, like the soldier at the cross, you will look up and you will see how he died for you and you will be able to say, you will have no other response, but surely this man was the Son of God. That's what we pray for you, that you would have a new beginning like that. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to be like us, to be one of us. He understands where we are and what we need. And what we need most is 
freedom from sin. What we need most is the ability to overcome death. And he gives that to us by his own resurrection. Father, the road that you've called him to walk means that we get to walk free. So Father, if there's somebody today here that needs a new beginning in Christ, I pray that you will work on their heart. I pray that the Holy Spirit will direct them to Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, sent into the world to save them from their sin. I pray that they will accept that work on their behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said.